I've given up on trying to figure out what number my podcast is because I always get it wrong. This may be 30. <clears throat> this may be 30? I believe so. 20... Episode 30 of Pals with Bill Watman. Yeah. Don't quote me, though. I may be wrong. Uh, okay. So, uh, okay, you are a uh, an architect. That's right. And we're, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about everything. Sure. Because I have architecture questions for you. Great. Because when we were taking pictures, whatever, two and a half weeks ago. Right. I, I, by the way, the whole thing about the, uh, orders of columns, mm-hmm. I, I was needling you. I, I realized that you, you even said it, um, <laughs> but happy to revisit that conversation. I would, a, I would like to actually revisit that conversation, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, so you are an architect here in New York city. You're how old now? I'm 27 years old, 27 years old. Yes. You went to school in Miami mm-hmm. and then you went to school at Yale. That's right. Um, does Yale have an undergrad architecture program? Yale does. It's not a professional Bachelor of Architecture, which is a five-year program. Uh, yeah. It's sort of a... Uh, uh, it's it's under a snooty the, art of architecture? It's uh, <laughs> No, it's under a... I think it's Bachelor of Science or something, you know. The, so you could sort of get your feet wet with architecture, and if you're really interested in it, you then go back to grad school. Uh, because in order to become a licensed architect, one of the requirements is to have a, a an accredited... Professional degree, exactly. So most of the time, that's a master's degree in architecture, or it could be a professional five-year degree, which is what I had. Right. Uh, So in theory, I didn't need to go back to grad school for architecture, but I recognized that there was so much more to gain out of going back to school for that. Yeah. Uh, It's where my passion was. And also, as you know, you know, I didn't have a good acceptance rate yeah, applying to colleges, and I wanted a second go at that, so I took it. You know, took it as a challenge to uh, apply to schools again. And you're like, "Screw you, man! I got into Yale." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, is that is that the case? This is a, this is a general architecture question, which I always didn't quite understand because you you hear stories of well, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson designed his own house and that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. When did it get to the point where you had to be licensed to be able to design buildings? Well, you don't have to be licensed to design buildings. You don't even have to be a quote-unquote architect to design something. You just need to be licensed or registered in order to stamp drawings. Okay, so you could have somebody else stamp. You could, I could say, this is how I want my house to do, and somebody like you could look at it to make sure that it's structurally sound and whatever. Yes. Well, structurally sound, you may need the assistance of a structural engineer. Yeah, yeah. But if you were to design, you, Bill Oddman, a photographer, a portrait photographer, amongst many things, were to yeah, design... just like, you wanted to make some crappy portrait photography house. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. If, if you were to design your own house and then come to me and say, hey, I want you to stamp these drawings for me so I could get it approved through the channels, first of all, I'd ask you, well, why are you hiring me, an architect, if you already have something designed? Right. I probably wouldn't do that for many reasons. You right. know, if I'm associate, attaching my name to something, I want it to be up to... Um, either certain standards or, you know, some architects are into branding, you know, designs have to fall along that. But mostly people don't like to stamp other people's designs for liability issues. Oh, interesting. So the reason that you need to be a registered architect before stamping drawings to open your own form, et cetera, is so that if something collapses or, you know, God forbid, some, someone gets hurt because of a design flaw, they track down who was the person responsible. Right. So many registered architects choose not to open their own firms, choose not to stamp drawings so that liability doesn't affect them. 
Oh, interesting. Yes. And they have somebody else do it for them. Yeah. Or so, they're in a larger firm where there's a group of people who actually do the stamping and a whole bunch of people who design stuff. Exactly. Usually the person whose name is on the door ends up stamping drawings. Interesting. Yeah. See, yeah, and everything goes under their name. So they also get to take credit for all the amazing stuff their team of 50 people does. Yes, precisely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, is that still a thing? People really designing their own homes, like the, the sort of classic Renaissance man I, you know, I label. think classic Renaissance man or person, as as we would yeah, call it these days, enough, yeah. um, probably not. I mean, you know, the people you're referencing, they were painters, they were sculptors, they were scientists, inventors, and also happened to be architects, right? The Da Vinci's, yeah. the Jefferson's, the Michelangelo's of yeah. the world. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, I think that many people have their own vision. You know, if you wanted to design your own home, you have a vision that you want to see come through and you hire an architect as a professional to be able to assist you either reach that vision or, you know, have it come to fruition yeah, or embellish it or consult on yeah. what could be better, et cetera. So yeah. and, if, and if you went to an architect and said, I, I just want a big open space and I was thinking, uh, uh, you know, a uh, roof on an angle and this kind of thing. And maybe like that, something like along those lines is kind of what I was imagining. And then they can go draw something that maybe fits those constraints. Yeah. So I think the best, projects, the best works of architecture is when a client has a vision yep. and an architect has the technical know-how and uh, historical knowledge, et cetera, and they collaborate on a beautiful work of architecture. Right. You know, one of the, one of my favorite buildings that we were talking about several times was the Salk Institute in La Jolla, yep. California. And the architect Lucan worked in collaboration with Dr. Jonas Salk, and they both, Salk said that he wants a place where Picasso could meet with scientists and they would have a conversation there. Yeah. And if you hear Lucan talk about this and there are recordings of him, he really speaks wonders of the collaborative experience he had with Dr. Salk. So in many ways, if a client has some input and is willing to be, you know, to have that input challenged in some cases or supported or maybe... Uh, have the client's eyes open towards different possibilities that they may not have been aware of at first, those tend to be the best works of architecture because as a professional, I can create more if I'm reacting to something. Sure. The hardest thing for an architect or an artist, I, I think, is, a is blank to, piece of paper. Exactly. You know, where to start? How do I start? You know, so the more parameters you give me, whether it's site, whether it's budget, whether it's style, although that word style is loaded and can be challenged. Yep. Uh, I have something to react to or against. Right. Right. Now, have you always wanted to be an architect? How far, how far back does that go? Cause you grew up in Saudi Arabia. I did. Where in Saudi Arabia? Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Okay. Yes. Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. My parents, both of them were born and raised in Mecca and I have still family over there. So I spent my childhood first, first 16 years of my life. Uh, commuting back and forth between Jeddah and Mecca. Okay. Uh, but did I always know I wanted to be an architect? Probably not. You yeah. know, the way this all started, I'd love to give you a novel story such as, oh, I was playing with Legos one day and, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, that cliche saying where it influenced my life trajectory, what I did at three years old. But uh, no, no, it wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Uh, although my mother always said that she saw me as an architect. What? She saw you? She, you know, she, she envisioned you. She, as... she knows her son and she, uh, in many ways, more than anyone ever would. And 
thought that I would excel at this profession. And she kept saying that as I grew up. But ultimately, I arrived at architecture really by process of elimination. I had many interests, and I also knew what I wasn't interested in. So in Saudi schools, and I was in an all-Arabic, all-boys school for the six, first 16 years of my life, up to right. junior year, uh, you're exposed to anything and everything, all subject matters from middle school onward. So biology, chemistry, geology, physics, math, everything. Yep, everything. Yep, yep. And um, Mostly hard or, or also literature and music and poetry and... Not music, because when I was growing up, music was you know, still not really as accepted as accepted from a religious point of view. Like it was Western stuff, kind of that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For, you know, it wasn't social, maybe socially it was acceptable, yeah. but schools wouldn't implement it, um, you know, uh, in their base curriculum. Because it wasn't important or because it was offensive. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I'd, I'd say a little bit of both. Okay. Um, generally the, if we look at classical music, for example, sure. uh, people don't, necessarily have an awareness nor appreciation just because it's not present in the country you know we don't have orchestras we don't have concerts we don't have you know symphonies coming in and out so people are not exposed to it therefore there is no appreciation for it but at the same time and mind you whenever we talk about sort of things that i experienced in saudi arabia growing up recognize that that was a long time ago and things have changed drastically especially in the last few years. In the last few years. But at the time, music to some people was was not accepted yeah. religiously. Um, so going back to where yep. we got on, you know, there were all of these subjects in school. And I have always been the type of person that if I didn't find something interesting, I would not apply myself. Now, this drove my parents crazy and my dad in particular. You and I have this in common. Yeah, exactly. It's, why, am I, why am I studying chemistry biology if I know I'm not going to do any of this? Yeah. Uh, so uh, none of that interested me. I did enjoy art. So I loved painting. I loved um, drawing. And I did, for the record, play with Legos growing up. But um, again, I don't think that influenced much. What I think the moment that I realized architecture may be something that I wanted to pursue is um, I was fortunate enough to do a lot of traveling growing up. My parents believed that education was the best thing they could offer their four children. I have three sisters. And one of the things that they believed were, was part of education was seeing the world yep. firsthand instead of just through books. So they tried their best to allow us to travel and see the world. And through these travels to different parts of the world, I realized that I had an appreciation for cityscapes, yep. uh, for physical objects. Uh, Where would they take you? Uh, a lot of places in Europe and that kind of stuff because you were pretty close to there or? Yes. And most of the travels I did was with my sisters. Okay. Now, I mentioned that I have three. I'm the youngest. The eldest is eight years my senior. So in many ways I was sort of, um, you know, we would travel together and they would look after me. And um, so we would go to you places in Europe. You know, Italy had a big impact on me. Saw France, but also. You went on the Grand Tour. Oh, the great, yeah, yes. Again, again, I was unfortunate to be able to say that. I don't, yeah. I don't take that for granted. But, yeah. um, but it's, a, but it's, 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 it's a surprisingly, not surprisingly, well, surprisingly in this day, sort of classical way of getting interested in architecture. Loaded pun, but you understand what I'm trying to yes. say, right? Like you know, that's the way people did it in the 18th and 19th century, right? You went on a tour of Italy and you learned your 
classical orders and you exactly. did all this kind of stuff, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, when I when I traveled, I knew nothing about the classical orders at the yeah. time, but what I did see was that it's fascinating that some of these structures in Rome and or Florence or Venice in particular, some buildings are over 2,000 years old, yet they still are there. And what I quickly started realizing is whether people intended for it or not, they are interacting with the works of architecture either directly through either you know entering them, experiencing them, touching them, et cetera, or indirectly moving past them. Or uh, and, and that fascinated me. And coupled with the fact that I've always been interested in creation and now permanence and having the ability to do something that will directly influence or affect someone else's life fascinated me. My eyes opened to that. So I went back home and uh, decided to take an aptitude test because I come from a business-oriented family and I've always been able to relate to those conversations, found them fascinating. And, you know, many people, my parents included, have told me that I had a somewhat good balance between right side and left side of the brain. So I took an aptitude test and the first thing, you know, top result was architecture. Oh, so I thought, chance. well, yeah, here's, you know, maybe this, this makes sense. So I, I decided to, well, before I before I applied to architecture school, I mentioned that at 16, I moved to the States. Right. So that was after my junior year, entering my senior year of high school. Who'd you come with? No one. No one. No, I know. I now that was your choice to come here, or was it like your parents said you need to go somewhere else for your last years of school? It was absolutely not my choice. Did your sisters get pushed off to the west for school? Nope. This was purely. Eventually, they did. They all had their you know uh, past high school, their yeah. grad school, school experiences, yeah. uh, mostly in London. But uh, no, in my case, it was AK was generally going to go to the states for college. And after that, et cetera. But for high school, I think um, the decision was for my parents for multiple reasons. First of all, it was an easier track to get into school. So I mentioned I was in, all, in an all-Arabic school. Yeah. I had no experience with the SATs, TOEFL, et cetera. Yeah. So, so there come was, to an American school for a couple of years, easier to get into Exactly, exactly. Or, you know, so go through all of those things in high school rather than in college or take, as most people coming from the Middle East would do, is, you know, a gap year between high school and college to go through all of that stuff. So there was that factor. The other was that I uh, was sort of life trajectory wasn't very promising. I started to get to an age where I wanted to do things a certain way and had some rebellious acts and, um, you know, they thought stealing cars. I get it. (laughs) Not quiet, but close. And, (laughs) and, you know, my parents thought that, you know, let's, let's send him off and he'll have to deal with the consequences at a place where you will have to deal with consequences. So where'd they send you? Ohio, Gehanna, Ohio, out of all places. How did they choose Ohio? They chose Ohio because and we had... what the hell was it like going from Jeddah to Ohio? Not pleasant. Holy cow. Not pleasant. And you're like, so wait, who'd you live with? Was, I, it, a, was it a boarding school? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I was, um, I lived with family acquaintances at the time who... Were Saudi? No, no, no. They were Indian American. Indian Americans. They sent you to an Indian American family in Ohio. Uh, yes, that's right. You probably went to a very white school. I did, yes. It uh, and and you have like so. First of all, you're a Saudi kid going into a like totally white school in Ohio, mm-hmm. and you don't have any friends there because you haven't had anything. And right, what was that like? It was difficult for many reasons. 
I wish I could say it was exciting, but no, it wasn't. It was very hard. And I actually learned that that was the plan that my parents had for me early in my junior year. To so, sort of like shock you into what the world is like in Ohio? <laughs> it, yes, it was, you know, AK, what you're doing, you know, we think we're going to send you off and you're just going to have to deal. And I said, well, there is a clear way where I could avoid this happening. Is if I, if I flunk junior year, then I will not go to Ohio for senior year. One plus one equals two in my mind at the time. So for the first semester, I intentionally, you know, flunked all my you know, exams, all my classes. And ultimately, my dad pulled me aside one day and he said, you know, I, I know what you're up to. And I know what you're trying to get at here. Just realize something. If you flunk out a junior year, you'll need to do two years of high school in Ohio instead of one. So the decision is yours. Yeah. And you're going either way. You're going either way, you know, so decide what you want to do. And so for the rest of that year, I had to make up for... You kicked some ass to not flunk. Right. Then I started to pay more attention in chemistry and biology and applying myself, as I mentioned. I didn't have an interest in doing that. Um, so I came so to... So wait, what year was it that you were in, came to Ohio? I, I landed in the U.S., I believe it was July of 2008. Okay. July, so I am... And your English was great then? Yeah, well, great is subjective, but, you know, I spoke English fluently. I grew up in a gated community with a lot of expats. Oh, okay, so a lot of of English speakers around. Exactly, it was near the American embassy, and I think that was one of the best things that happened to me growing up, because I got to speak English just just by nature. Yeah, with people. With people who, that was their primary language, so... Did you end up taking English in school and doing well, because you already spoke English from home? As it were, I had to take English at school. The level of English that was being taught in school at the time was very, very, it was low. It was not great. Yeah. Uh, but my parents recognized that. And as such, I had a private tutor that would you know, come four days a week, one hour each day. And that's how I started to pick up English. And yeah. um, it's interesting when I see, pe- when I meet people like you, who <clears throat> English is like your not second language. It's your second language, but not like second language. It's like, uh, your second first language as it were you right. know, to some extent. Yeah. Right. I mean, but I, I'm always amazed. I'm just like, my God, like I would never know that you weren't only an English speaker. You know what I mean? The yeah. way you speak. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've had another 10 years of living in America, so that helps. Right. But it's just, I don't know. It's just interesting. Yeah, I don't I, mean that as a diss. It's, it's like, it's like, it's like a, wow. No, absolutely. I don't think I would be able to do that. It's, um, it's one of the many things that I'm grateful for to be able yeah. to say that I have two mother tongues. And in many ways, my English is much better than my Arabic because I have been writing essays in English. Yeah, especially been, now. Yeah. Especially now. Exactly. My, you know, my whole education, architectural education was in English, et cetera. So now, do you think it is a gift in the long run that your parents sent you to Ohio? I do. I think that at the time you were like, are you kidding me? Probably like shaking your fist, but absolutely. And, um, I think that it was the best thing that happened to me, you know, not only professionally, but also on a personal level. I, it was a very, very difficult year for many reasons. I didn't get along with the people who I was living with. Uh, they're, they're fine, kind people, but just the chemistry wasn't working out. To be living so far away from home as a 16-year-old, to have left all of your circles, social circles at the age of 16, you know, and um, just be stranded at a place 
not only a place, but Gahanna, Ohio. It was difficult, but I think that if that were not to happen, then I wouldn't be in the position that I am today. And, and I could talk about that specifically for hours, but, yeah. you know. But did you have to deal with a lot of like local people, like local kids making fun of you and all that kind of stuff? Like, oh, what are you doing here, kid? You know, surprisingly, not so much. The, uh, the I frequently say that the people in the Midwest are the friendliest people that I've met here in the States. Yep. Uh, the, it was a private school, you know, the a bunch of white kids, as you put it. But everyone was extremely, extremely pleasant. Most people were extreme, extremely pleasant and uh, have tried their best and really have gone That's beyond. empathy for the fact that you were a fish out of water. Exactly. And I was, you know, in the middle of um, a difficult situation in my, you know, living situation. So everyone tried to compensate for that. And, and you still have some friends from there? I do. Yes. And uh, I do. And actually in a couple of weeks is our 10 year reunion and I have, I will be attending. Interesting. Yes. I will be flying going, out to Ohio, flying out to Ohio for a day and a half. So the last time, what was the last time you were back there? The 2009 oh, graduation. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember my 10th uh, year in a uh, reunion. It was, it was interesting. So have fun on that one. All right. <laughs> so, so you apply to bunch. you apply, you end up in Ohio, uh, in, in Miami rather. Yes. Which, as we were talking about at dinner, you were not a big fan of. Yes, I certainly, and I'll relay that conversation to the rest of the listeners here. But, you know, I applied to 13 schools during my high school year. My father was of the opinion that applied to all these schools. It doesn't hurt to, and especially with the Common App, I don't know if that's still a thing, but you. It is now a thing, yes. It wasn't a thing when I was a kid, but apparently it is now a thing. Yeah, I think it may have just started when I was applying to schools or. um, You just click check boxes and pay extra money and. Exactly, but you know, so you, uh, and you increase your odds of going to school. So I applied to 13. Uh, Most of them were just architecture schools and I only got into one. Now, do, why do you, th- why do you think that is? Were your, was it grades? Was it test scores? Was it your essays? What do you think it was? Hard to say, but I know that my, what was it? Not the essay, the ACTs. I had a poor, poor score because again, math, et cetera, just didn't interest me. So I didn't bother studying for it too much. I think that a big part of applying to architecture school is your portfolio. And at the time I had some paintings. I used to oil paint growing up. Uh, and that's all that I had. Um, so as a portfolio, it wasn't too appealing, especially when, com- you know, compared to other yeah. candidates. And um, especially in today's world where like, these people who wanted to be architects started drawing things at age eight and they've had a. Yeah, right. And many they've schools, had shows and built houses by the time they're 16. That's right. It's fascinating, you know, and many schools have these high, high school programs for architecture. So by the time you're graduating or you're applying to schools, yeah, full portfolio, full portfolio. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think I was a strong candidate applying. So I don't, I don't blame the schools for not accepting me. Uh, I thank them because they fueled my passion and, uh, you know, desire for a second shot at grad schools. And yeah. So, so I, to answer, going back to your question, I ended up in Miami, University of Miami in Florida, not Miami, Ohio. And I, I don't drink. Right. For it started off as religious reasons, but you know, as I mentioned to you in dinner, I'm not the most. I don't follow the religion, uh, you know, word by word. I don't. Yeah. Um, so I could have drank if I wanted to. I don't party. Never found interest in that. I don't go clubbing. I don't. 
like going to a place where I have to shout my lungs out in order to have a conversation with someone over music that's playing at a obnoxiously loud um, volume. So it just Miami's lifestyle and its appeal didn't fascinate me nor interest me. So I spent most of my time, uh, most of my five years there at the architecture studio, really just working on my projects nonstop. And which is how you got into Yale. Which is how I got into <laughs> Yale. That's right. Because you weren't partying. You were actually doing the work. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm a very competitive person and we could get into that later, but um, I, I really take it personally when I don't succeed at something and that fuels me. So when I didn't get accepted to 12 out of the 13 schools that I applied to, I made it a goal to get into the schools that I want to at my second shot, which is through grad school. So for the first year and a half of my time in Miami, I had this whiteboard and I bought it at orientation and I wrote on it in permanent ink, the word Harvard. And I just hung it in front of my bed so that every day, every morning I'd wake up and I'd look at it. Now, the ironic thing is I chose a different school. I, yes. I did not go to Harvard. I went to Yale. Um, and, uh, but that, the point is, you know, that really fueled my entire time in Miami. Yep. And, um, so yeah yeah it's it's that sort of drive and that personal not just personal ambition but sort of um writing notes to yourself and stuff you can't see there's a lot of stuff on this board over here and there's actually these a bunch of papers that i used to have uh, uh stuck to the wall you know that say don't waste time right and no more boring backgrounds and you know, like all these just different things that are just like, no, I'm never going to do that again. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you're not keeping to it a hundred percent, but it's just sort of these reminders of, no, this isn't where I want to go. This is where I want to go. Right. But at least in my work, I find it difficult to define goals mm -hmm. because your field is so much more structured. Mm hmm it seems like it's easier. There are goals already there. You just have to choose which ones you want to do. Does that make sense? Like that, like you're an undergrad. Okay. I want to go to grad school. What are the best grad schools? I will choose one of those. When I get out, I want to work in New York at one of the firms that does this. Then I want to climb the ladder within that firm, or I want to go open my own shop, or I want to, you know, that there are definitive rules that you can follow. Like there's a path to follow mm -hmm. if you want to use it. Do you find that that makes it easier for you to reach for the next rung? Cause the, the ladder is kind of already there. It's just choosing to put the energy in to get to the next rung. Yeah, that's a great question, Bill. I think that in architecture, as in many professions, there are these milestones that you could choose whether or not to accomplish them. Um, I think early on one has to ask themselves what, kind of architect do I want to be? Yeah. Uh, you know, do I want to work for one of the firms in New York City, as you put it, or do I want to do something more, um, something different, you know? So the corporate firms over here are great. You get a certain type of experience and, you know, there is some value to that. Or you could be working at a different firm that may be smaller, less prestigious, but you get something else out of it. Yeah. Uh, but And may be able to get your hands dirty in a better way earlier. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So why, you know, it's sort of part of a bigger question, you know, why is, why does someone decide they want to be an architect? Yep. And you could either be an architect to establish yourself as a brand 
and work for these mega firms and build these skyscrapers. At the same time, there is a different type of architect that could say, hey, my goal here and my passion and calling is to provide shelter for underprivileged societies, you know, provide some design value or to enhance people's livelihoods in a matter that I could or affect the world in a matter that I could. So I think that, yes, there is a, going back to your initial question, there is sort of milestones or steps that you could choose whether or not to take, but you still ask yourself some questions. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Determine. what path do I want to go Exactly, down? as you I, would it, as a photographer. In my, my wife's, yes, although I, I feel like at least in photography, there's, it's, there's far less structure. You know what I mean? This is true. Um, You're also working primarily by yourself. True. Yep. 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 Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my wife's in the legal world and just, you know, do you want to work for a big white shoe law firm? Do you want to go into clerking? Do you want to go to a do-gooder firm and you know what I mean? Like right. save kids who need to get whatever, you know what I mean? There, right. All, all kinds of things like that. So in your mind, what was your goal in architecture? Once, I mean, once you went through undergrad and once you were in grad school, did you find that your, your, what you wanted to do within architecture changed over that time? Or did you always have a singular goal and it was just a matter of getting there? I, it, it certainly changed and I'm glad that it did because if I were to set a goal going into architecture school, what was it? Um, well, at the time, I just wanted to gain as much knowledge about architecture and history in particular is something I'm interested in. But, you know, if I wanted to set a goal going into something and then after exposure to that thing for a year or two, five, still have that same goal uh, completely unaltered or changed, I'd say I'm doing something wrong, right? Yep. You know, it's, things change. And um, I'd say that one of my interests, going back to this notion of travel, Again, I was fortunate to see not only Europe, but other parts of the world that are not as advanced or um, societies that are not as privileged, quote unquote. And that disparity between the two really was something that caught my attention. And I think that to me, the thought of providing a building of good design or of good value to to people in more need of it. I found that more rewarding than, say, adding yet another skyscraper to the skyline of Manhattan. Yep. So that was that was amongst my thoughts going into architecture school. Now, as I took courses and seminars and studios, I gained more interests. But in many ways, I was able to reaffirm my initial interest. So I started to tailor some of the things that I had a choice in, uh, seminars, papers, research studies, et cetera, in affordable housing in particular. And that was something that that really is a passion of mine still, I'd say, uh, to be able to cater for those type of societies, to be able to tie architecture to something more meaningful, at least to me. Yep. Yeah, it is. I mean, God, I mean, the history of affordable housing, at least in the West, is its own. God, we could talk for six volumes on that. Right. But I mean, even in New York City, you know, the housing projects that were built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, many of which are still around, mm-hmm. would never be built that way now. And, yeah. You know what I mean? And you look at them now and it's just like, wow, these just like these brick or concrete towers mm-hmm. that like have no life to them. Right. Yeah. And that tends to f- the people who end up living in there end up feeding on 
the fact that there's no life in the place that they're living, which only makes the whole situation worse. Absolutely. It's just, it's, yeah, it is interesting, but, but at the time, did they, did people think that that was the best they could do? Was it a, a money thing? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that modularity, it was something kept that cost down, kept cost We're gonna down make six or, of the same thing all next to each other, rotate them 30 degrees to each other or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> put, put several buildings next to each other and therefore you establish a community. You know, one of the sort of the biggest case studies in modern housing. Well, well, strangely enough, segregating them from the people actually in their community outside exactly. of that space. Exactly. And the biggest example I could point to is Pruitt Igo, which I believe it was, hmm, early 70s that that project came to an end where I think they had 33 concrete towers, you know, slab buildings, all arranged in one area in St. Louis, I believe. And uh, it was detached from the city. And all of a sudden you had this agglomeration of a specific demographic of people who didn't interact with other segments of society. All of a sudden it fueled the stigma of what affordable housing is, affordability, et cetera. You started to have crime take place sure. and the project came to a point where it was just a center for drug lords etc uh, there's a documentary about it it's called the death of prudago i believe and you know it came to a point where police was afraid to enter they didn't so want to go there it was a lawless want to go place yeah exactly and the uh, ultimately the decision was made to end the project and the first of the 33 towers to be imploded was nationally televised and that whole history was termed the death of modern architecture in many ways, um, or at least the death of affordable house, affordable housing thought of in that matter. Yeah. But it, what's interesting about that is that, I mean, is that true or is that like saying, you know, socialism can't work because Leninism didn't work and Leninism was socialism. It's like, well, is it really? So was this modern architecture or was it people who didn't like modern architecture putting that label on, on a bad example of modern architecture in order to doom it? Does I, that make sense? Yeah, I, it does make sense. And it's a very good question. And I think we should define what modern architecture sure. yeah, here is going talking about. Right. I, I have lots of stuff I want to talk about. Great. So. No, we'll get into all of it. I think that what I'm referencing is, uh, you know, modern architecture to to most people who are non-architects is not fancy glass buildings. It was sort of an era yep. of, of design and buildings that was primarily brutalist in many ways. You yep. know, they had all a lot of, these, of people don't like brutalist architecture. A lot of people don't like brutalist. A lot, lot of libraries around the country at major universities are brutalist and Yes. Everyone hates them. Everyone. Well, not everyone. You know, there's, okay. Okay. <laughs> everyone, I, funny, it's funny because I follow a brutalist architecture Instagram feed. Yeah. Because I actually like brutalist architecture within reason. Well yes. done brutalist ar- architecture. Right. It feels like Star Wars buildings or something like that sometimes. Right. I mean, by you, the way, brutalist is not brutal as in the way we think about it. It's like the German word for concrete or something, isn't it? Right. Something it's like primarily that? exposed concrete yeah. that is being used. If you look at Boston City Hall, for example, yep. which a few the, years one ago of the was classic examples. Yes, it was voted the uh, ugliest or most hideous building in the city by non architects. I think a lot of architects like it. It's a great building, I think, just maybe not for a city hall. Functionally, yeah. it doesn't work that way. The School of Architecture at Yale University it was designed by Paul Rudolph. It was yeah. built, uh, opened in the sixties, fifties, I think. When did that whole st- when did brutalist stuff start? Mid twentieth century, early to mid twentieth century. So thirties, forties, fifties. Yes, and there were specific architects that have canonical works. Paul Rudolph being one of them. 
Corbusier was part of the martyr movement, uh, not so much in brutalism, but you know, you had specific people, Japanese architecture at the time, metabolism, which is a Japanese movement, uh, also sort of advertised brutalist architecture. But going back to your initial yep. question about modern architecture, I'd say that um, Prudigo was the death of modern architecture in the sense that we can no longer build communities that are separated from society and put all of low-income families in there. You know, yeah. we need to integrate these people. We need to uh, make sure that they are interacting on a daily basis with people and other segments of society, just on a practical level sure. so that, you know, people have jobs to offer and people are in need of jobs. That's how integration happens, right? Exactly. Yes. So it's cordoning people off in their own little pens, which do you think that that is a, that is a, uh, a judgment that some people would place on the people who made those decisions. Like you were choosing to put all the poor people over there. You know, do you think that that's what they were trying to do? Or do you think that they were really just trying to make affordable housing? And that's the land they had. You, you get what I'm getting at? Yeah. I, I don't think that, and I may be wrong. It's a I charge. Can't, I can't speak for people, but I don't, I don't expect, for example, the design of Prudigo or any other yeah. similar development meant for, the people living there to be segregated and for crime to ensue, et cetera. I think that they really thought that this would bring unintended consequences of, of all of it. Yeah. They were not aware of those consequences. I think that they saw the merit and, yeah. you know, if you hear them speak about it, sure. You know, you could yeah. easily be convinced, but again, you know, um, you know, if you were playing chess, for example, that's something I would interested in. I I would call that a blunder, right? Where you're sort yeah. of too focused on something and you don't take into account yeah. collateral damage. Yep. And it, it makes you think, though, what decisions are are you and your compatriots who are doing similar kind of work today making that 30 years from now you're going to look back and think, oh, my God, we were so short-sighted or had our blinders on about this whole other element of this. And this, you know, this part of this was a disaster. I mean, it feels like there's always nothing's ever a hundred percent perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's always going to be something that in the long run, people look back on and go, Oh, could have done that better. Right. You know, and do you have any sense of what that could possibly be for today's world of, of what you do? Yeah. I, I truly believe that at some point in the future, near future, I hope people will realize that they should have been more attentive and cared more for sustainable design, green building technologies, et cetera. Yeah. Because, and, materials? And materials, strategies, you know, it's not necessarily just the materials you choose, but the type of buildings you design, you know, buildings that require less energy consumption, you know, sure. HVAC uses, et cetera. And even, even let's rotate this 30 degrees. So it's more efficient for using the sun or something like that. Exactly. And that's one example of what we would call passive sustainability. Yep. So a lot of people are focused on all of these active high tech things. Let's put some photovoltaic panels on the roof and you reroute energy and contribute back to the grid, et cetera. And really yep. the most cost savings could be something as simple as orienting a building a certain way or, or planting trees or, or planting trees or recognizing that this site may not be the best use uh, from an energy perspective of what I want to accomplish from a sustainability perspective. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it may be the most profitable. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of people, especially today, especially in this city would make decisions based on possibility first and foremost, but I think ultimately there is a consequence to that. And that is something that we may look back on and wish that we would have been more attentive to earlier. Yeah. 
I wonder if he, uh, because profit motives are more dampened in a lot of places, say in Europe mm-hmm. than they are here, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to real estate and places like Germany and stuff like there's limits to how much something can go up in value over a certain amount of time. I mean, there's all these like structural things in there. I wonder if that, well, Europeans also have the ability seemingly to be fine with living in smaller space than most Americans. Sometimes by necessity. Yes. Yeah. 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 But I mean, but there's a cultural thing of like, no, we don't have a kitchen. That's the size of this apartment. Right. You know what I mean? The McMatches. There is no McMatching culture in Europe. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, that I wonder if because profit is is less of a motivator there, if they make better design choices because of that, or if the regulations are overbearing in such a place that it actually hamstrings people from making better decisions because they have to follow very rigid structural stuff that, you know what I mean, has been put in place seemingly to help them, but then ends up hindering them. Right. Well, Europe is much older than the United States, obviously. Countries that we may be referencing right now, the Italy's, the France's, the Germany's, the Portugal's, yeah. there's just a lot more history to take into account. You know, someplace like Rome, it's very strict in a lot of regulations, really direct, you know, limit what you could do as an architect. You, know, yeah. you have to be, build a new house. You're going to find some Roman ruins underneath. That too. But, you know, you build a new house. There are certain ways you can and should build a new house aesthetically yeah. wise, you know, design wise. Yeah. And especially in central Rome, et cetera. And yep. if you were to break away from that, for example, the Arapaches Museum in Rome, which is a building by Richard Meyer, it's very modern looking, it's glass, it's travertine stone, which is native to Italy, but done in a different way. If you are, if you have visited the Getty Center, for mm-hmm. example, in LA, it's the same style. Yep. And that's placed right in the middle of historic Rome. And if it were anywhere else in the world, or maybe outside of Rome, that building could, you know, be more, could have been received more positively by the people. But many, many locals and visitors view it as disrespectful to the context. Okay, yes, uh, I, I, I agree with that. But there are a lot of buildings that are found disrespectful at first and then are becoming beloved by people. I mean, the Eiffel Tower, for example, right? Parisians hated the Eiffel Tower and now they love the Eiffel Tower. So do you think a hundred years from now, they're going to feel the same way or a hundred years from now, they're going to think, oh, it's just another old building. That's if it's still there. Well, I mean, hold on a second. That is a question right there. You were saying there's buildings in Rome or whatever it is. And these places that are 2000 years old. Mm -hmm. Does anyone expect modern buildings to last for 2000 years? The whole lifespan of, I mean, there's something about architecture that has a semi-permanence to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I bet you that's probably one of the, attractions to a certain ego of person right is like this thing's gonna be here when i'm long gone people are gonna be living in my building damn it you know that kind of thing right Right. but very few modern buildings are gonna be here 200 years from now you know fact yes probably you fact yeah i'm saying that that (laughs) is a fact i think that the way we build the the way we construct buildings yeah even if we wanted them to last for 200 years yep Chances are they won't. Curtain wall skyscrapers are not going to last for 150 years. That's right. You have new buildings going up, curtain walls that are leaking the next week. You know, the roofs that are leaking, et cetera. So just constructability-wise, I don't think that something will last 200 years. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But, 
you know, I think more relevant to your question, the culture of that uh, is gone. You know, no one expects something designed and, you know, curtain wall and steel and glass to last as long as the Pantheon, nor right. should it, you know, but. Yeah. But do we make anything that will last that long or could last that long? You know, maybe Grand Central Station will be here a hundred years from now. Well, if it wasn't for, uh, you know, God bless them, a good number of people and it wouldn't uh, be here today. Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. 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 Many, it would not be here today. You know, right. it would be Penn Station, New York, you know, 2.0, where right. you have a beautiful work of architecture, a classical work that uh, because people were short sighted, decided to take it down and yep. it was lost in history. Yeah. Yeah. Although some people argue that it was railroads were on the decline. And it was unsustainable to have such a big place just for railroads to begin with at Penn station. Yes. I, that was the primary reason they was taken down. Yeah. I, you know, I would say to those people, if knowing what I know now, first of all, you're wrong, <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, you know, going back to this idea of being sustainable and uh, more attentive to the world and the resources that we have, maybe try converting that space into something different. Adaptive yeah. reuse is a movement that yeah. that's uh, a very Modern in the non-modern architecture, but modern as in now. Kind exactly. Of, yeah. It's it's a contemporary concept, I'd say. Yeah. I was like, there's a building, there's a building uh, in the back bay, an apartment complex in the back bay in Boston that's built around an old church that they took the roof off of. And the inside of the church is sort of a courtyard that mm -hmm. all the buildings attached to, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I was like that idea of, oh, let's take some old thing and redo it. Of course, that generally involves a lot of money unless you're out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, right. But the, yeah, that it, it, there's something kind of cool about making something new out of something old. Absolutely. And it, you know, it automatically makes that building or project's history rich and fascinating. And now this used to be a church. Now it's a school. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right. So can, can we can we get into some uh, some stuff here? Let's do it. I got, I got topics. All right. Uh, <clears throat> all right. The, the, I want to go back to Greek and Roman for just one minute <laughs> right. because, okay. You no, know, cause obviously a lot of Western architecture is very, I mean, my God, look at the Capitol building, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're still trying to build temples, right? You know, I mean, that's basically what half of the institutional buildings in America are. Right. right? Uh, and then you, 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 I mean, and a lot of that goes through like, what, like uh, 16th century Italy, Palladio and that kind of stuff, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, we're going to take this classical stuff. We're going to update it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's how we get the White House, right? right. You know, that kind of stuff, right? right? And and if you go to McMansions out in New Jersey, mm -hmm. we still have five columns in a, in a circle around the front of our little tiny door on our, you know, crazy right. McMansion, whatever it is. Like, like, why is it that we're so obsessed with something that happened 2,000 years ago? And I mean, to, I mean, to the point of even you in Saudi Arabia, obviously there are old buildings in Saudi Arabia and the shapes of arches and the tile work and all of these things that are very famous, plus the religious aspects of mosques and all the rest of it. I mean, that's its whole other thing. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, a lot of the modern stuff they're building in Saudi Arabia is very Western, right? These like giant skyscrapers and stuff they're planning on building, right? Right. But like why are we so obsessed with it? Cause we're not obsessed with Byzantine architecture mm -hmm. all that much, but we are obsessed with Roman architecture. Right. 
you know, we don't really build things the way Westminster Abbey was built mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. you know, but of course things go in and out. Gothic stuff comes back in and we get neo-Gothic and then that disappears. And you know what I'm saying? Right. So how do you think that history repeats itself? Why do we end up obsessing about things from so long ago? Is it just sort of trying to give importance to our own era by calling back to, to, to past eras? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I know mm-hmm. this is a huge question. I'm throwing out a lot of stuff. It's but. a huge several questions that are embedded in this one question. Okay, I'll stop. So no, I'll, I'll try to take on each of the points that you got. And you kept referencing we, why do we, why do we? Let's establish a distinction. I'll, okay, fair I'll, enough. I'll answer the questions, plural, based on we as in the Western world. Yep. And then you also mentioned Saudi Arabia <laughs> and that part of the world. Because I think, because I mean, obviously they don't care about Rome the way we and the Italians care about Rome. Right. Right. They care about their own past. Right. But at the same time, they are doing what you're suggesting they are. And I believe they're for different reasons. And I'll explain both. Okay. So the first portion of your question, I think that classical architecture, it is working and it has worked. Yeah. And therefore, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. It's it's something that has proven to, you know, last and outlast history in many ways. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, classical architecture is as objective as architecture can be. For yep. example, each of the classical orders, the Doric, the Ionic, the Corinthian, and then there are supplementary orders, but each one is not just how to, you know... Choose spice the, up a column. Spice up a column. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not that. Each each one carries with it a set of rules, a set of principles yep. that are applied throughout the building. If you think of music, it's sort of the rhythm yep. of of a you know classical piece or in the same way that English gardens are laid out in very geometric ways. Exactly. Yep. So it's it's a very mathematical process yep. and it's very harmonious when done correctly. Although, don't you think that in the same way that we people obsess about say cheese mm-hmm. when cheese was originally just a way to store dairy for the winter mm-hmm. that classical architecture was a necessity for the materials they were using and the way they were trying to build something that wouldn't fall down and so they codified this stuff so that things wouldn't fall down and we don't have those constraints anymore of materials and structure mm-hmm. and but we're still doing it that way for aesthetic reasons correct okay yes and to your point after the uh, Industrial Revolution, we started to have a lot more steel buildings and yep. walls going up, et cetera. And people would argue that, well, this is of our time. However, people were sort of designing buildings based on those materials willy-nilly. There was no sort of, as I mentioned, as close to an objective set of rules as possible. Uh, you know, you didn't have Vitruvius who 2,000 years ago wrote a treatise on how things are and how they should be done. You didn't have a Palladio coming in you know, in the Renaissance or an Alberti or a Bernini uh, who really reinforced and revived those set of rules. So I think that you mentioned Palladio and I had Bernini and Michelangelo and those people. Have you been to, what's the town that Palladio designed like half the things in the Vicenza. Town? Yeah, I've yes. never been. Yes, it's, it's amazing. The Villa Rotunda is there <laughs> off of a hill. That's the yep. most famous Palladio building. But then he, as you mentioned, has many There's other buildings. There's a dozen or two dozen of them around. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. So it is a remarkable town if you're into that type of architecture. Yes, yeah. Yes. I mean, I appreciate that kind of architecture, but I tend to want to question 
it's power, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder sometimes if it's only, um, uh, you know, inertia that's keeping it around or if it's, you know, it's sort of like, uh, no one ever gets fired for buying IBM, you know? Yeah. No one ever gets fired for building a, a, a building with columns that looks like, you know. Well, people will get fired for attempting to build a or design a classical building done in the wrong way. As I mentioned, there are very specific rules yeah. and principles that you are ought to follow if you were to use ionic, you know, capital yeah. or the, uh, you know, that particular style. Yeah. So, the, and people go to school for the, you know, the, Notre Dame, for example, a school that is a classical school. That is what you do. You look at classical architecture, you draw it, you draft it as you would have done back in the day. You watercolor, you paint it using watercolors, yeah. etc. Also a Jesuit school, interestingly enough. So it's got like the, oh. I do believe, right? So you also got the religious side of that right. all in there. Right, right. But I think that classical architecture really just took a hiatus, you know, after ancient Rome, etc., and it was brought back in the Renaissance because people like Palladio, like Bernini, recognized that the quality of building at the time was just not what it used to be. And therefore, you had the Renaissance movement. Yep. Now, people, some people challenged that, like Borromini, for example, who, you know, started called back to the Baroque period and started to combat classical architecture and specifically Bernini. And, you know, them too, if you know the history, they're sort of going at each other and that that is the history there's some weird bernini stuff that there's some stuff bernini designed that you're just like that's feels like you're on drugs yeah <laughs> like yeah, some, yeah yeah that's like, true wow really yeah i mean even in even in st peter's like there's the the crazy thing in the middle like you know that's right above the altar that he designed that has like these spun right, the baldacchino yeah <clears throat> you're like yes okay that's weird looking for the time right you know it feels of a different time than it was designed. Right, built. right, exactly. So that's, and that's something that architects do, you know, whether to, as you mentioned, call back to a period yeah. or to challenge that with yeah. contemporary, you know, materials or design styles, et cetera. So I think that may have addressed the first portion of your question. It does. Thank okay, you. great. So now to the second part <laughs> of it, you know, I think that countries such as Saudi Arabia and the Middle East really are obsessed with catching up to the West. And this is, you know, purely my opinion. I'm, you know, maybe wrong. A lot of people would disagree with me, but there is a notion that we need to fight the stigma of us being backward looking, of us being too traditional trapped in the stone age. And the way to do that. You're American, 1870. Exactly. And, you know, (laughs) or exactly. Uh, But the way to do that for many people is to mimic what exists in the West. So all of these guys. And do it bigger and better. Bigger and better. So you have Dubai, which in the span of 20 years has just transformed. From the desert to this building that's, you know, 600 meters tall. Exactly. And all of a sudden, you know, they have Burj Khalifa. Yeah. And Saudi Arabia now wants to be, you know, the biggest. 30% bigger than Khalifa. 30% bigger. So you have the, you know, the tower in Jeddah that is currently under construction that is, you know, expected to be the tallest building in the world. Now, what all these people are not realizing is we're building skyscrapers out of glass in the middle of the desert where temperatures during the summer could reach up to 125 degrees. And sandstorms and all the rest of it. And sandstorms. But, you know, just to go back to this notion of energy consumption, you you know, you have a a kilometer high building clad in 
and glass. Yeah, you just got to burn some oil, make some electricity. Burn some oil, make some, <laughs> yes. You just, you got to cool the damn thing yeah. most of the year, every single day yep. of the year. So, but many people want to do that because it is an image that they're projecting, right? We are of course. on par. In with, the same way, a bank using a building that looks like a Roman. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that um, a lot of the historians, architectural historians, art historians in the Middle East, myself being one of them, really are saying, well, actually, we don't need to look at the West. Why don't we look at the history of our play? You know, as you mentioned, sure. Byzantine architecture or the Ottoman architecture that existed sure. for centuries. Yeah. You know, Sinan, who is an Ottoman architect, has these beautiful structures in Istanbul, in Turkey, etc. Yeah. that, you know, why not look to those things for inspiration, not to mimic necessarily, but just for inspiration? Well, I, I was in uh, Sevilla last year and there's the Alcazar there that is very, you know, Muslim, like influenced. Right. Just because of like the tile work and the, and the shape of everything. And it's like, it really does feel unlike anything else. Right. It doesn't feel like Spain. I mean, I guess it feels like Southern Spain in the sense that, you know. Right. Andalusia. You know, <laughs> yeah. Cordoba. Granada, exactly. Cetera, yeah. Yes. But like, you know, it, it, to somebody who hasn't been to the Middle East yet, it, it, it does feel sort of otherworldly, right? Like this is outside mm -hmm. of my thing. In the same way that I, you know, I was in, uh, I went to Japan a few years ago and it's like, right. okay, well, you know, you go to Nara and you see these giant wooden temples and you go, holy crap, this is the biggest wooden building in the world or whatever it is. Right. And it's been there for 500 years. Right. And you're just like, this is insane. Why did they end up building this? You know, because that's just the way they did it. Mm -hmm. But it, in the same way that we were saying how, you know, you could be blind to your own thing when we were talking about this, the uh, architecture for housing, mm -hmm. public housing, I, I, you know, it's just like wherever you grow up, whatever is normal around you, you could be completely blind to, it's like a, 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 a tangential arrow coming in, right? You know, and kind of going, wait, no, 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 you don't need to do that at all. Or maybe it's not, you know, I mean, the Chinese are building cities that like no one's even living in, right? Like right. they're just like building to build, right? Like literally we're just going to build to prove that we can spend money on building and have all this stuff. They've used what was it more concrete in the last 10 years than the West used in the last hundred or some crazy. I mean, there was some crazy stat, right? I mean, right. concrete's terrible for the environment, mm -hmm. like the making of it, right? It uses tons of energy and yeah. material and all yeah, the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of heat it gives off and like, right. All this kind of stuff. It's like, it's, it's strange that we haven't, I feel like in 20 years, we're going to look back and say, we missed so many cues of how to do all of this better because mm -hmm. we were so obsessed with trying to build giant penises to the sky. You yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you yes. know, like you, it's Saudi Arabia has a whole lot of space mm -hmm. with not that many people in it. You don't need to go up. We need to go up in Manhattan because there's nowhere else to go. Right. Other than for prestige, there's no reason to go up. You could build, outward in a much more smart way, maybe for the landscape that it's in, mm -hmm. but they're not doing that. Right. They're not. It's just, it's yeah. To step back from an objective point of view and you like, look at it like an alien and you go, what are you guys doing? I mean, you could say that about people all over the world, but like just that as an example. Right. I mean, all of these things, Bill, they're <clears throat> trying, their status yeah. driven, right? Sure. I mean, you have Dubai building islands shaped in palm trees 
Yeah. For what? Yeah. You know, it's I a, like the one that's shaped like the world, right? Aren't there like ones that are like the, the different continents and islands yes, of the world? One's shaped like the world, one's shaped like a palm tree, uh, both of which I believe are sinking. Right are they? Now, so that, yes, yes. Because indeed. wait, because they're going down, or because the sea levels are coming up? No, who knows? But it, it could be either. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they're yeah. they're sinking. So you build this thing, most of which was is currently uninhabited. You know, it's yeah. People are not living there. Yeah. Uh, why would you live there when just infrastructure wise, it's not very efficient? Yep. Right. So you have these people and decision makers making decisions based on acquiring status. Yeah. I so years ago. I was, I was in England. I was traveling England a lot. And I was working on one of these daily portrait series that I'm doing now. This is 2007. And I desperately, so stop me if I've told you this story before. Uh, I desperately wanted to get a member of some sort of royalty, somebody with like a title mm-hmm. in my series. And I'm like, there's gotta be somebody. So I said to my friend, Andrea, I was like, who should, who, you know, who, there's gotta be somebody, somebody knows some like third Earl of whatever it is who happens to be like a lawyer or whatever it is. Like, I'll yeah. take it, you know. She said, You should try to get Lord Bath. And I was like, Who's Lord Bath? And she said, He's this crazy guy who has multiple wives that he calls his wifelets. Okay. And lives in this house called, he lives in Notting Hill in a house, but he has a house out in the country uh, called Longleat that was designed by Smithson. Mm-hmm. in 1570 or whatever the hell it was. Right. You know, like it's like old school manor house. Yeah. He's got a safari park on his land where he's got lions and giraffes and all the rest of it that you can go visit. And they started, his father started it in the fifties as a way to maintain the house. Cause they couldn't afford the land and the whole thing. Cause they didn't have a lot of money, but they had this giant house and whatever it is. So they started this safari park. Mm-hmm. And so I found Lord Bath's email and I email him and the guy says, yeah, come on out. Well, where do you find this guy's email? Lordbath.co.uk because the he had his own website because he's an artist. And he has his contact, a direct he contact. He had his info. direct contact. Info. Now, I don't know if he wrote me back or if one of his handlers wrote me back. Yeah. So I wrote him and they wrote me back and they said, yeah, come on out. So <laughs> Andrea and I got on a train, went out to, oh, what the hell's the town? What's the town? Are you a cathedral guy? I mean, it okay. depends what you mean by that. West of, there's a famous spire that's kind of crooked on one of the cathedrals, like out a couple hours west of London. Oh, I forget what the hell the name of the town is. I'll have to look it up. Anyway, take the train out there and we get in a cab or we get to like, the, the, we take a train to there and then we take a train to the actual town and we get out and there's cabs there and we're like, we, we you know, we're, we're, we need to get to Longleat. And they said, you do know that the the house is closed right now. It's off season or whatever. Like, no, yes, we've been invited by the Lord. (laughs) So we get in this cab and we go, okay, it was ridiculous. We go, like you're driving down these meandering woods, right? And you're like going up and down these hills through the woods and you come out. And I mean, these places were built to like stun people, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the whole point. Right. You come out of the woods and, you know, a kilometer and a half out in the distance is this house in the middle of these giant lawns. You know I mean? Like, yeah, like, like something like the things you've seen, right? right. Like, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, all the famous manor houses, right? Right. Picturesque setting, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we like drive down and there's no one there. So we're like, how do we like knock on the front door? Like, you know, and we end up going to the back door and there's like a button 
And he answers. Lord Bath. Lord Bath answers. Yes. You know, and it's just like, uh, 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 yes. And, and Andrea's British, my friend. She's like, yes, my lord. And I was like, he's not Darth Vader, man. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> and and his, his handler comes down and takes us up. And in this Smithson house from 1570 or 1540 or whatever the hell it is, this guy has a ultra modern apartment in the upper like corner of it with neon backlit glass desk, like something out of a movie. Yeah. He's watching TV, drinking soup out of a thermos. He's got a dog named Boudica. He's like, oh, Boudica. He's like, please speak up. I'm terribly deaf. And I take some pictures of him. It was all very like surreal. I think about it now. I'm like, what is going on? What the hell happened? Right. And then his assistant guy takes us on a tour of all the private residences upstairs that no one ever gets to see. Mm-hmm. Like all the old stuff. Like this is the first bathroom that was put in in 1812 or whatever, you know? Yeah. And then we go downstairs and like the curator of the place is there and gives us a tour of the whole house. Just the two of us. Wow. Of like this, you know what I mean? Like, you know, as you can imagine, one of these manor houses would be. Yeah. And it's just like, you look at this and you go, what? it's almost like some sort of weird evolutionary dead end. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, like some animal that died during the Cambrian, ex- you know, after the Cambrian explosion became this big giant thing and then died off. Yeah. It's some extinction, you know? Yeah. But yeah. these things still exist, right? This house with a thousand acres of land and a safari park and one guy, old guy living in it. Right. It's just weird, you know? And these, but, but, but like, the idea that, 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 you know, the whole rich people spending, giving a lot of money to some architect to build them something, mm-hmm. you know, you got that kind of stuff back in the day mm-hmm. and you got built more and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then you got probably people gave a lot of money to Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, that's always this constant thing or, or Frank Lloyd Wright, right. You right. know, like, you know, falling water was for this company, this Jewish family that owned a, 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 a department store in, right. in Pittsburgh. Right, right, right. right. Um, the, the, the connection of money and architecture has always been this really deep thing Mm -hmm. and a necessary evil in order for people to architects to make what they want to make. You think that is a a great question. And it's the Howard work. Like I don't, I don't work so I can have clients. I have clients so that I can make work or right. Right. Oh man. Well, we could spend an hour talking about Howard work and the founding (laughs) head, but <laughs> and, and what where I fall in that spectrum, but to answer your question, I think you're not a Peter Keating, are you? I am not a Peter Keating. Okay, not a, but I was. I'm not a Howard Rourke either. I think that I'm somewhere in between. And uh, people who haven't read the Fountainhead probably have no idea what we're talking about. But uh, you know, back to your question, I think that of course the money and architecture in many ways go hand in hand. You would not have the greatest works of architecture if you didn't have patrons behind it who could fund it and 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 afford to build something like that, not just for design expenses, but in order, you know, a budget to handle all the materials, to handle the difficult constructability issues. And maybe freedom, right? And freedom. I have enough money and I'm going to trust you to do something that some corporate person wouldn't trust you to do because I want you to stretch your legs a little bit. Right, exactly. And that, you know, that brings up something else that the field of architecture sort of is challenged again, you know, ethics in architecture Mies van der Rohe, for example, was amongst the many architects who was tapped by Hitler to design 
works for the Nazis. Right. And, you know, it's an interesting question whether as an architect who may not agree with those political and ethical views, uh, take that job in order to produce great works of architecture or whether to say, hey, no, sorry, and reject that opportunity. So the bigger the budget, likely the more things you can do as an architect, similar to you as a photographer, I would imagine if someone yes. were to contact you and say, hey, we have, you know, this X, you know, $50,000, we could build a set and do this crazy stuff. Exactly. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or we don't have any money at all, but we have this really interesting thing that we, we you know, we want you to partake in. I posted one of those uh, today that I did for a friend's band. I was just like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. Exactly. Exactly. So yes, architecture plays a big part or money plays a big part into architecture. I personally find that the most creative solutions are those that are driven by low budgets. You know, when you don't have so much money to work with, how creative Carport can you be? instead of a garage. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised what you could do with just paint, you know, and yeah. the effects that you could produce. And, I, you know, I find that interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you, do you think that the era of sort of the, in the same way that we have sort of famous chefs now, mm-hmm. the last hundred years we've had famous architects. The star architects. There is actually a term for that, the star architect. Okay, yeah. You know, some of whom, like Gary and these guys, are, are literally using aircraft design software to design their buildings. That's you know? right. That's right. You know, Frank Gary, his, he was designing for an era that was way ahead of him. You know, at the time that he was coming up with these structures, he did not have, the field of architecture did not have the tools to be able to test some of those things out. So as you said, he resorted to other means I think that we are still very much in the era of star architects. We just recently, uh, two, three, maybe three years ago, lost probably the biggest name in the field of architecture, Zaha Hadid, yeah. who died very young. I believe she was in her fifties, and it was very, it was sudden. And at the time, I was still at Yale School of Architecture, and she was teaching a studio there. And I chose not to take that studio, but I got to see her and, uh, you know, sort of rub shoulders with her and engage in conversation. And, you know, it is, it was very impressive what she did in particular, because architecture is a male driven, still male driven profession that why, has, why do you think that is just as a quick aside? Or is that a bigger aside than a quick aside? Uh, that is a much bigger thing. But, okay. Uh, yeah. We could discuss it later. Go we ahead. could discuss it later, but yeah. um, she just sort of challenged the status quo and she achieved so much sort of just getting past the gender barrier and uh, was a trailblazer in that sense. But also she was very smart with how she established herself and her design as a brand. So not only did she design buildings of a certain aesthetic, she also designed silverware uh, of the same aesthetic. She designed yachts for certain people in the Middle East, you know, she so on and so forth, furniture, et cetera. So she really became more than just an architect. She, it was really a brand and when she passed away, she has a partner, Patrick Schumacher, and her firm is based in London. Um, they continue to design buildings and continue to work on buildings that were being designed during her lifetime. And they still maintain the name Zaha Hadid Architects, even though she's not part of the firm. But because her name is so big, it became a brand, etc. So yes, we still very much live in an era of star architects and probably will continue to do that for some time. Well, I mean, there are a lot of buildings being made now. I mean, uh, along the 
Geary end of the scale. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of buildings that, to me, toe the line between giant sculpture, like mm-hmm. a big Richard Serra sculpture or something like that, mm-hmm. and a building. Yes. And maybe aren't always... Like, I think the Guggenheim is a very cool building, and it's kind of interesting, but I don't think it's actually a great place to see art. Which Guggenheim? Uh, the uh, uh, Up on Fifth Avenue. Got it. Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, the Frank Lloyd Wright yeah. Guggenheim. Sorry, I jumped around architects there. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> we, we can get to... Well, because uh, Gary has yeah, a Guggenheim yeah, yeah, in, in, the, in Spain, yeah. 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 Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Because I think they're, they're kind of related in the same way, where it's like, you're trying to make a statement about about the outside of the building mm-hmm. or the, or the Gary Disney hall in LA. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen a show there, mm-hmm. but it seems like there must be spatial inefficiencies because of the external design. Of course. Right. And I tend to sit there and go, uh, is this, is this just peacocking or is this actually a well-designed building? Right. Uh, and I feel like the Frank Lloyd Wright, I felt like Falling Water, which I've also seen up close. And you and I were talking about like the size of the rooms mm-hmm. being very small mm-hmm. and the fact that it leaks and the fact that it actually structurally isn't built that well and it's tilting downward mm-hmm. and falling in a little bit. And they have to like do all kinds of stuff to maintain its angles and all the rest of it. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that like that one, I kind of get in a very Howard Rourke sense of like, this is the perfect for the site. And you know what I mean? This is what they were going for. Right. The Guggenheim to me, I think it's cool, but I don't think it's a great, it's like, it's, it's very inefficient the way the space is to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you're walking up the circle, but like it, it seems like kind of a one trick pony. Yeah. Um, do you feel like some of the buildings being built now, like the Bilbao or, or some of these Gary buildings, that this we're going to look back years later and say, oh, that was that period of time when people made these crazy sculpture buildings that were actually not that great of buildings, but that's what people wanted because they wanted people go, wow. Right, right. Good question. I think that you're touching on probably the biggest ongoing debate and debate that has been going on for centuries, whether a form follows function or function follows form. Yep. And every architect probably leans one way or another or falls under, you know, my guess is that you land on the, well, the two should dance with each other and create something even better in the middle. That's what Frank Lloyd Wright stated. That's not where you go. I think that it really depends. I don't think that there's a rule of thumb anywhere. And it may sound like a cop out, but for example, let's look at the Guggenheim and Bilbao. Yeah, it was, it is, a completely alien design <clears throat> and to, sticks out like a sore thumb in that city sticks out like a sore. First of all, it's, it's Bilbao, Spain. Who goes to Bilbao, Spain, if you're yeah. going to Spain? Well, well, that's the only reason they built it there. Right. So people would go there to see that building. Exactly. And as a result, there is actually a thing called the Bilbao effect, right? Where you create something that actually attracted a huge number of people and continues to do so. Where Sydney Opera House, probably. Sydney Opera House, et cetera. So you have an entire city that in many ways was revived and their economy was revitalized. And a lot of people are just coming in because of this one piece of architecture. So is it a successful work of architecture? Well, it really depends on what you mean yeah. by success, right? Is it the best place to exhibit art? Mm, there are better places, probably. Yeah. You know, the Louvre being yeah. or the Met, for example. Yeah. But- 
it is successful in the sense that it really did a lot for that city. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. And for the people and that it provided jobs, you know, as people come in, in and out throughout the year, uh, small businesses thrive on the business the tourists bring yeah. with them. Have you seen it in real life? I have not been to Bilbao, uh, yeah. nor is it, uh, you know, frankly, uh, anywhere near the top of my list. We were just talking about sort of my travels and desire to go to places for specific works of architecture and buildings. Um, but it, Bilbao is not amongst the top. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. We sort of went off at a tangent. Yeah, but so 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 overall, though, you if if the if the two if the question is how do you define success, mm-hmm. and success can be a more macro view of what this building did for the city of which it's in mm-hmm. is taken into account. Yes, you may say something is is a success, even if the building on a micro scale isn't necessarily a success for what it was intended to do, which is say show art. Yes, I I would agree. I think that the best way to measure success is to weigh the results against the intent behind the design that produced that work of architecture. So in many ways, Frank Gehry, he is interested in sculpture. He is interested in art. That is the type of architect that he is. And And he almost could just be a sculptor. Yes, indeed. And Zaha Hadid was the same way. But, you know, and uh, I got to know Frank through my time at Yale because similar to Zaha, he was teaching there. And I have friends who took his studio and speak to the character that he is. For example, he surrounds himself with artists, not architects. So in many ways, he is a sculptor and appreciates sculpture and his architecture reflects that. So sure, you know, his buildings may not be the best buildings in terms of achieving a specific function. You know, his opera houses, I haven't been to the Disney opera house in LA, but uh, it's cool looking from the outside. It is cool looking from the outside. Would I design something like that? No. Am I interested in designing something like that? Absolutely not. But I recognize that in many ways, Frank Gehry, of course he is successful and yes, the biggest name that is out there today. Yeah. 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 And then people, want buildings by him because he has the name, right? Which is the Starkadect thing. So Absolutely. Talking. Yeah. It's, uh, God, it's, it's all so interesting. Do you, you know, there's, um, you were telling a story about going down to Fort Worth. Yes. <laughs> all right. Can you just retell that story? Cause I think it's great. Absolutely. So a little bit of background for the listeners. I, I am fascinated by a specific architect in Lucan, Louis Kahn. I mentioned him earlier And uh, for many reasons, I think that his works resonate with me on a spiritual level. And I'll just leave it at that. And if you hear him talk or read his texts, you get the sense that he's just on a different level. And his works narrate that and achieve that. So I have uh, set myself on a quest to visit all of his major works. And How many are there on your list? Well, there is one remaining. So I have been to all of his major works, uh, three museums, a, the Yale Art Gallery, and the British Art Center at New Haven. With first and last of his buildings across the street from one another, there is the Philip Exeter's Library up in New Hampshire, the Salk Institute, yep. the uh, DACA Capitol Building, okay, and several others. So I've been... I was fortunate to have seen many of these in person. The one that remains is the Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, 
But it's a ways to go. It's a ways to go, but <clears throat> I intend to visit it hopefully in the near pilgrimage. Future. Pilgrim, exactly. So on the note of pilgrimage. Interestingly enough, yeah, like the the non-religious. Well, you know what? I say non-religious, and I am not a religious person. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way that you and I, the way that you think about architecture, and the way that I think about a lot of the art that I like, is almost a religious way, in a, in a small r religious way. I would call it a spiritual. Spiritual, fair enough. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that uh, part of religion is spirituality and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly it's the same fervor. <laughs> same fervor. Same fervor. Yes. Yeah. And um, so back to Fort yeah. Worth. Fort one Worth. of one of the biggest buildings that he has, the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. And well, how did, by the way, how did Fort Worth? Because the Eamon Carter Museum is also a really big museum. That's in right. Fort Worth. That's right. A friend of mine just moved out there to take a job as a curator in their photo department. Yep. And it's like, how the hell did Fort Worth, was it oil money? Is that how all that came to be, oh, you think? I, you're asking me questions that I don't have the answers to. It just though. seems like a strange place to have multiple sort of big famous museums. Right. It's not just those two, by the way. There's the uh, Museum of Modern Art in Fort Worth by Tadao Ando, which is a prominent Japanese architect. Beautiful works, very similar to Khan. They have the Fort Worth Water Gardens by Philip Johnson, which is just a an outdoor park, free to enter, and it's a series of water sculptures, let's call it at that. Go so with Fort Worth. Fort Worth has a lot of great stuff. Amongst them is the Kimball Art Museum, as I was saying. And it's this great museum, free to enter by Khan. And at the time I was in grad school and I really wanted to visit it. So for spring break, I took, you know, round trip to Fort Worth, a week-long trip, and I stayed in Fort Worth, and for the six First six days of my trip, I would only spend it in the museum. They would open at 10 a.m. and close at 6 p.m. And for that duration, I was inside the museum, observing the building, how it changes throughout the day, the quality of light, how people filter in and out, the type of people that come in, just how people experience the building. Do you think about flow of people through buildings? Is that something important to you? I mean, I know it's something architects generally think about, but is that something that's particularly important to you, sort of the the uh, fluid dynamics of people within a building? Yes. Okay. For several reasons, some of which is just design preferences and sort of uh, curating a series of spaces, but at the same time, practical reasons, egress. Sure. You know, how people exit a building. So they get out. (laughs) Exactly. So yes, flow of of buildings is a a big part of what I do. Uh, But so back to the Kimball Art Museum, for eight hours a day or however long that is, I would be there. I would have my lunch every day at the cafe inside the museum and I also decided to uh, write a research paper on this building in particular. So it was part of documentation as well and research. And I would make voice memos. I would sketch on site. And at the end of that, at 6 p.m. every day, I would go back to my hotel and just reflect on the experience I had. And it wasn't until the seventh day of my, my last day is when I went and saw the rest of, uh, you know, Fort Worth and also Dallas. You know, I yeah. stopped by Dallas. I just drove in and out and saw a few things. The, but, you heard the theme music to the TV show? No, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> but yeah, so that that is the type of um, traveling that I do. As you said, it's a pilgrimage and uh, it's something that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, it seems to me that for a lo- for, in the arts for a while, in the 20s, maybe it was, you know, Berlin. Maybe in the early 1900s, it was Paris. Maybe in the f- post-war years, it was New York. Mm-hmm. 
and New York obviously still holds power in the world as like one of the major cities of the world. But is there an argument to be made that somebody who wants to make their market say architecture should be in Shanghai or back in Jeddah or you know what I mean? In, 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 or, or, or in a Southeast Asian city that's coming up being Kuala Lumpur or something, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. These places that are just exploding Mm -hmm. that, that, Places like New York and most of Europe are like old and state and they're not going to change and you'd, you'd be better off making your mark somewhere more dynamic. I think this goes back to what it is you're trying to do, what it is you're trying to do. You know, are you looking for fame? Are you looking for recognition or are you looking for influence? And the biggest way to track that, you know, the, the shift that's currently taking place, and I'll elaborate, is to look at the Pritzker Prize recipients. And the Pritzker Prize is the Nobel Prize for Architecture, Yep. To, just to put it simply. It goes out annually to a single architect for a lifetime's worth of work, a, a body of work. It's not a single building, but an achievement award. And usually it went to all of the star architects, the Garys, the Tadondos, yep. et cetera. And it was, I believe this was 2015, give or take a year, where it went to Alejandro Aravena, who is a Latin American architect who primarily did just public, public affordable housing work, you know, in Latin America, South America. And he was recognized, you know, on a national, international stage for that type of work that he's done. So, you know, that person wasn't striving to achieve, not to you know, project my thoughts, but that person wasn't striving to achieve fame. He really believed in achieving something meaningful through his work uh, for underprivileged societies, as I mentioned, and ultimately got the recognition that he deserved. Because the zeitgeist came in his direction, not that he was trying to find that. Precisely. Precisely. Now there was, uh, once that happened, there was a lot of discourse and debate whether or not he should have gotten the award. And uh, one of the critics the sort of prominent yeah, the critics. arguments against yeah yeah it was patrick schumacher who i mentioned earlier the partner partner of yeah Zahadid, yep. uh, who is a recipient along with Zahadid, uh for their work so again you know going what back, was his argument well you know this stuff's not important enough that kind of thing it wasn't pushing the and again, I don't boundaries know. of architectural exactly. design. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. the counter argument would be, it, well, it, it actually does in a different way, just not the one that you believe in. Yeah. 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 Do you think that there's, there's, it, there's a lot of talk now about, um, you watch, you read dwell magazine, right? I, and, I don't. Oh yeah. But you know what I'm talking about, yes. right? Okay. And sometimes you see these houses, he's like, Beautiful houses, a lot of which are like these crazy prefab houses, right? That 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 are designed by really amazing architects. There's just like you don't need to, you know, literally reinvent the wheel every time. Mm-hmm. We can build these things, and it's more efficient. And there's like there's an efficiency and an environmental impact angle to basically building the same thing over and over again. If it's a good design, what's the problem with that? Right. You know, do you think that the world, as we get more and more people and less and less people have enough money to hire architects to design something from scratch, that the the road to good design is in well-designed prefabricated housing? 
Well, you know, one of my favorite quotes to answer your question is, um, there's nothing new under the sun yeah. from the Bible. Ironically, I'm, you know, a Muslim quoting the Bible, but uh, you know, it's, I truly believe that there is nothing new. There is no innovation per se that could happen. You know, you could build on previous ideas, but you, you're not going to come up with something yeah. new. Yeah. And the tide just goes in and out. And the tide just goes in and out. Exactly. So I think that architects need to be of their time and place, uh, you know, in when they're designing buildings. Now, I think that prefab has a lot of benefits to it and um, not just prefab, but also modular design. So, yep. for example, when Hurricane Katrina hit, one of the biggest results, uh, positive effects that that had was what's called the uh, Katrina Cottages. It was started by Marian Cusado, who essentially designed these prefabricated homes that could be shipped out on a truck bed. Yep, And they were modular, they were prefabricated and sort of provided homes almost instantly for people who have lost their homes. Yep. So I think that there is... 50 years from now, those will be the kind of things people want as the same way of shotgun houses and all that kind of stuff have become desirable, even though they were like the thing that people didn't want at the time. (laughs) Right. Now then, you know, you could... The counter argument would be, well, aesthetics and do you really want the world to look like prefab homes or modular homes or uh, is there room for creativity? You know, you're limited. So um, again, I think that there is a time and place for everything, including prefabricated homes. Uh, Tiny houses. That's the whole other thing, right? Like people building these little tiny, in my opinion, too small. Like I'm fine with living in the whatever 550 square feet that this place is, Mm -hmm. but like I couldn't live in 80 square feet. Right. I would go insane. Right. Well, see, the funny thing is we New Yorkers think that our spaces are way too small. You know, you go to Japan. I don't, by the way, I don't mind. This is like, this feels, I've been my friend's place in Japan and Tokyo. It was literally the size of my bed. Right. So it's all relative. And I think that if you were to, I don't know, you've been in New York for 12, 18 years? 20 years. 20, wow. 20 years. Uh, If you were to spend 20 years in Japan or Hong Kong. Yep. That would feel normal. That would feel normal. Yeah. So um, I think that... You spend 20 years in a McMansion. You feel, think that that's normal. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but the appeal, I think, to tiny homes, it ties into just the minimalistic lifestyle. Sure. And people just not not wanting to accumulate things or believing that we should be more mindful or selective with what we have or yep. what we own, et cetera. So that yeah. just sort of... I agree with that, by the way. I'm just a little bit further down the scale from that. Yeah, I I wouldn't live in a 100 foot, you know, square foot home either. But, uh, you know, I'm fine with a studio. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, the only reason I need even as much space as this is that I do. People come to our house from outside and they look and they go, you live in this little apartment with someone else? You and your wife live here? Yeah. Don't you drive each other crazy? Don't you need another room to go into? It's like, no. Yeah. Sometimes she's lying on the bed reading a book while I'm working on something on the computer. You know what I mean? We're six feet away from each other and we're not talking for two hours. Right. 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 It's okay. You don't need 27 rooms. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) You're right. I grew up in a, you know, almost a 5,000 square foot house in Connecticut with a pool in the backyard or whatever it is. Like I have no desire to, to have a place like that, you know, where for a lot of people, that's the goal. Yeah, it is for a lot of people. It's the goal, and you know their reasonings. Whether it's status, uh, see, yeah, and for many people, it's status, et cetera, yeah. right? Yeah. But you know, the interesting thing is, if you were to conduct a study, you know, a heat map of spaces in a home that are being used, you'll come to realize that fifty, seventy percent of the spaces in a home are not being used on a daily basis. Yep. So 
We never have the couch. I never sit on the couch. Well, there we you have go. the couch for when people come over. I almost never sit on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost never sit on these chairs other than the fact that you and I are recording. I'm either sitting on that chair next to my desk mm-hmm. or I'm in the kitchen or I'm in the bathroom or I'm back at the desk. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like the whole like living area part right. of it. No. Right. But isn't that, isn't that interesting, right? You're in many ways catering your own home <clears throat> to other people, you know, or to yeah. hosting yeah. other people. Although I will say that, I mean, as far as like New Yorkers go, it, it's always interesting to me when I hear about people who are, oh, you know, we rebuilt our kitchen, you know, for when we host people, it's like, well, how often do you actually host people? Right. You know, right. And right, most right. people act like they want, they want the, the show of hosting people, but they themselves probably don't host all that often. Right. We actually probably have people over at least once a week. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, so we have people and then, you know, stuff like this, right. I have you over to record right, right, people right. over to take portraits or that kind of thing. So right. yeah, in general, I probably have more people here than 90% of people have at their home. Yeah. You know, just because of the, my lifestyle and the kind of work that I do. Right. You know, um, but yeah, no, your point is taken. Yeah. Similar to what you're saying about sort of you actually using this or hosting enough people. I, um, this has nothing to do with architecture, but, yeah. but a year ago I was with one of my sisters and she's really into cooking and she, the art of cooking, et cetera. Um, and she wanted a, it was a La Crusette yeah. uh, sort of pot. And, you know, those things come in serving sizes. So this one serves two people. That one serves four people, eight people, up to 12, I think. And we were just talking about, well, what, what size do you want? And those things are very heavy and costly, et cetera. You said, well, you know, I want the six to eight servings or something like that. And so said, how often do you feed six to eight people? How often do you, right. You're, you're bringing this for yourself because you want something for your kitchen to cook in and to enjoy, et cetera. Um, but no, actually, she... Uh, loves to cook for other people and to host, et cetera. Yeah. So it made perfect sense. Yes. You know? so yep. She put it to good use. It was a great purchase on her part and, um, and she's enjoying it yeah. you know, primarily for that function, right. To host people, to, to enjoy people. So I don't, you know, I yeah. don't have an issue with that. I, I will tell you one thing, uh, wrapping up here. I, one thing that I've noticed, cause I've lived in this apartment for a long time mm-hmm. and we rent and, you know, we talk about buying if we can, you know, very expensive to buy in New York city for those of you who don't live in New York city. Yep. Um, and we, you know, there was a time in my life where I would think, Oh, I need a, I need a bigger, I'd want a bigger bathroom than this, you know, for X, Y, Z reason. And then I kind of think, and I go, I'm a 44 year old person. I've been using this bathroom for six, 17 years. Like it's fine. Right. If I died tomorrow, I wouldn't on my deathbed be thinking, Hmm. If only I had a bigger bathroom. Right. <laughs> right. But it's, it's so much of it is just keeping up with the Joneses or, or, or putting on a show, you know, it's true. It's true. You know, I recently moved from a one bedroom apartment to a studio and at first, you know, I thought it would be just a completely different experience, maybe a negative experience, et cetera. But I, I think through the process of purging the stuff that I, that I needed to purge in order to move into a studio, um, you know, I started to reflect about what I have and what I actually use. And I got rid of a lot of stuff, you know, donated some stuff, et cetera. And I can honestly tell you, Bill, that I am much more comfortable in my home. I just, it's it's inner peace, you know, knowing you're yeah. in a space that you are utilizing every part of, every possession that you have in that space. There is a, an intent behind it. You have asked yourself whether or not you will make good use of that thing that you have over yeah. there that you yeah. chose to bring into a smaller space. Yeah. 
Uh, it's just a, a great way of living. And I mean, some consumerism and stuff is a whole other, oh. we could talk for six hours on that, but right. it, is, it is certainly a big problem in the world. I mean, talk, talk about envir- environmental issues and, and sustainability. It's just like, guys, buy less stuff, right? Think about what you're buying, buy a better version of it. So it lasts longer. Exactly. Like just, you know what I mean? Yep. It, it, but, but so many people don't want to do that. It's like, what is it? There was a, there's a, some sci-fi book where it's like the, the boot theory of, of where basically the idea is that like, if you're poor, you can only buy a $50 pair of boots, mm-hmm. but you have to buy 10 pairs of them because they wear out so quickly. So you end up spending $500 where if you were rich, you'd buy the $350 pair of boots that would last you for 10 times the cheap pair. Right. So basically by being poor, you're spending more money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the sad reality. But, but I think there's a lot to it. Yeah. 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 Is there anything obvious we didn't cover? You tell me, you know, it, it, I don't know. I'm you have a, an extensive list over there. I do. Can, I do have a list, but I've been crossing stuff off as we go. I, I don't know. I want you to take, I don't want to take your whole, your whole day, but, uh, well, I have all the time in the I world. I think, I mean, I think we got a lot, you know, if we come up with something new, we'll just, uh, we'll just have to, uh, bring you back. All right. We'll have a sequel. Is that right? You do, you don't, do you do any social media or anything like that? I have a public Instagram that I post mostly architecture stuff. Okay. What's the, what's the handle it's on that? A.S. Nasir, N-A-S-E-E-R underscore. And that's it. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, thanks for coming out. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah, that's fun. Um, something I was going to ask you. Oh yeah. Where'd the AK come from? Cause there's no K in your first name. There is no K in my first name, nor, <laughs> nor my last name. So great question. Surprised it took you this long to ask it, but I used to play a lot of sports growing up back yeah. back home, and uh, my full name Abdul Gadir wouldn't fit on my jersey. So in middle school, the person that was in charge of our jerseys took the liberty upon themselves to abbreviate my name uh, to AK because <laughs> they had thought that Abdul Gadir was spelt with a K instead of a G. Oh. So I had a nickname on my jersey, my sports jersey, and it it stuck. You know, it, even it was, with your family. Even with my family, you know, and honestly, AK sounds much better than AG. So sort of, you know, kept it. And there are very few people in this world that call me by my first name. And even my dad calls me AK most of the time. And each one of my sisters has a different nickname for me. My mother is pretty much the only one of the few people that call me by my full name. And It's like Buzz Aldrin, right? His sister called him Buzz because she couldn't say uh, uh, whatever his real first name was. Edwin? Mm-hmm. So she like she she made some buzzing sounds, so they called him Buzz, and then he it ended stuck. up being Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, right. And Toy Story made a character after him. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. You, there you go. All right, we'll uh, we'll finish up, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Great, Bye. thank you. Bill. Um, that was fun. That was great.